Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Crystal Silence League Hour, live from Divine Harmony Spiritual Church in Knoxville, Tennessee, on the LMC Radio Network, a show dedicated to open-minded discussion of spirituality, new thought, prayer, and the practical use of crystals. And now, your host, the Reverend John St. Germain. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. I'm not testing the sound. I'm just making sure I'm awake. It's late at night for me, 8 o'clock. I'm usually asleep by an hour by now, 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. I get up at 5 a.m. I usually go to sleep at 7. By 8 o'clock, I'm in dreamland, and the subjects of my dreams would shock and appall you. Well, maybe not. You know, I don't, I don't really have erotic dreams. When I have erotic dreams, believe it or not, it's about my wife. Isn't that that boring and dull, but kind of endearing in a way? Isn't that something (laughs) that Reverend is disclosing tonight? I'm on a a muscle relaxer right now. I wrenched my back. If it's not one thing, it's two other things. My shoulder is healing well, although I can't lift more than five pounds over my head. I can't lift five pounds over my head with that arm. I can lift 50 with my left arm because I'm a hulk of a man at 60. I'm a workhorse of a man, but... No, I can't lift five pounds with my right arm, even though it's it's healing nicely. I just have to build up that strength. I have a little set of bar dumbbells I lift and grunt and moan and uh, stretch with that arm. So it's it's mending, but um, because the arms are uh, uneven, the mechanical system of the human body craves balance. I apparently wrenched my back while I was uh, manfully carrying um, our Christmas bins upstairs to put into the. Uh, storage and uh so now, so my uh, wonderful next door neighbor gave me a handful of uh, muscle relaxers and uh so I, I take those this time of day so you know who knows what will come tumbling out of my drug crazed consciousness tonight it's uh it, I, I tend to be uh, uninhibited anyway usually um uh through uh, senility uh, exhaustion and just my normal um, swings of my bipolar disorder or, or whatever it is I have. But uh, I, I just think it's the uh, the regular dysfunction of being born a Southerner uh, in my particular family. Um, we, we were never particularly discreet. Um, we thrive on scandal. But hey, tonight, Anything goes. What the heck? It's the Crystal Silence League Hour for those of you tuning in. Um, not worldwide wrestling, and why did Knoxville um, elect uh, a retired WWF wrestler mayor? Um, that's discussion for, on the other blog talk, uh, blogosphere, <laughs> cyberspace blogosphere. Um, well, because we're a bunch of rednecks here, that's why. You know, hell, we. We, we we had Kaz Walker, the millionaire grocer for mayor, back when I was a kid, and this guy used to fist fight. Pictures of him fist fighting at the city council meeting. If he didn't like what you said, he'd get up and punch you in the eye. Yeah, he really did. Um, that's Knoxville politics. Did you know? Did you know? Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, wrote a story about some time he spent as a journalist in East Tennessee. It's called Journalism in Tennessee. It's on the internet. Look it up, Journalism in Tennessee, where uh, he worked for a newspaper in Johnson City, which is about an hour's drive from where I live. And the newspaper he, uh, in the story, it's very funny. You know, it's one of his funny stories. And it, it was called the Johnson City War Whoop. But uh, look it up. And nothing has changed in Knoxville journalism since that story he wrote. And uh, it, it's very funny. It's a hilarious story. And it gives you uh, uh, some flavor um, of, uh, of Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, occasionally I'll uh, write about Knoxville journalism. And uh, 
on, on my Facebook page because I'm inspired by Mark Twain. So it's pretty good. Well, Doctor Doctor Jeremy is showing up. The the gang is all here, and I expect a lively time in the uh, in the live studio audience tonight. There we go in our in our uh, sumptuous Victorian era studio uh, theater that we uh, that we hold the show in the restored vaudeville theater in which we hold the show and uh, our uh, live studio audience of thousands i should get some uh, uh, old uh, gaffer sound effects of audiences clapping and cheering and you know create that illusion of old time radio yay everybody yay yay everybody stand up and applaud yay and you know have a theater fire everybody has to vacate Everybody proceed orderly to the exits. Do not panic. Don't panic. The firemen are on their way. Wouldn't that be a hoot? That'd be a hoot. And uh, I think it'd be fun. The uh, Crystal Silence League was founded around 1917 by Claude Alexander Conlon, who did work in vaudeville theaters, presenting his psychic prowess um, alongside such notables as Houdini, Keller, Thurston, um, and a whole bunch of other people you may have heard of, and he um, most often outsold them, showcased them, headlined them, and uh, um, he often took uh, letters from the Crystal Silence League in huge mailbags and poured them on the stage, and laying his crystal ball upon this heap, he would answer and pray for those who sent him such letters, and even those people in the uh, theater audience would... uh, seal questions in envelopes and he would have those brought to the stage sometimes sometimes not they were left in glass boxes i have a glass box just like you used to use they were made by the um, national cash register company and uh, i have one in fact um, of the type he used to use and they were locked and the locked boxes were brought up and he would walk around with either a silver ball or a crystal ball depending on his mood and he would answer these questions wasn't it something and um, as Dr. Weiss points out, I do I do have one of his scrying balls. I have a uh, um, it's like a cannonball. His hands was huge, about the size of a bowling ball, and it's uh, silver plated and in very good shape for the age that it is. And the box, that, the shipping box that came in, and the thing weighs a ton. It would give you. I don't think I could lift it now with my recovering arm. It would. Uh, it's a uh, um, the. It's probably about an inch thick of uh, of uh, steel, uh, iron, cast iron, uh, um, not lightweight at all. I imagine when I read about his show, he would go and hand it to people and have them look at it. And I imagine this guy who's almost seven feet tall, uh, very strong, holding this ball in his hands, and you know the illusion is that it's – he'd go over to somebody in the audience and hand it to them, and that they were probably just about uh, – Handing them a boulder, they would just go, you know, this huge ball and uh, this huge heavy ball. um, You know, they would just practically collapse, Um, and uh, uh, you know, they just come and pluck it out of their hands like it weighs nothing. You know, giving the uh, um, impression of his uh, his strength, his power, um, uh, you know, his personal magnetism, and. Everybody wanted to be like that, so they'd buy his books that he sold afterward. And uh, I got in a discussion with some magician about uh, – he in a letter to a uh, a student, he was talking about how uh, – this after his retirement, about how you could uh, – with a, a show like his, you could make $2,000 a show. And this guy was arguing with me about the price of tickets and stuff, and, uh, and uh, I just didn't argue with him because um, um, a lot of the income – well, first of all, he – he packed these houses, and yes, you could sell easily twelve hundred dollars worth of tickets um, at those prices. And uh, if you packed the house, and if you had matinees, um, but also the the what's called slum that you sold, um, the swag that you sold afterward. Um, I can tell you, I used to sell stuff after my shows, and I used to make more money selling um, books and CDs and. DVDs and uh, um, pendulums and uh, uh, all kinds of stuff. After I, I made three times what I was paid for the performance, and uh, so I, I'm not I'm not going to argue with guys who you know have poverty thinking 
if Mr. Collins said he made two thousand to three thousand dollars a performance, I believe him. And as he retired and founded Chris, you know, he founded the Crystal Silence League when he could have continued doing this stuff. So you know, I don't, I don't, I, I don't. You know, you can sit and think of reasons why you can't be successful, or you can think of reasons why you can be successful. It's simple as that. Well, 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 where are we? Um, I'm going to take a um, take a drink, and uh, so what, what's coming up next? What's next? And now it's time for our crystal of the week. Oh, is it really? I don't. I don't. What is our crystal of the week? Oh, it's uh, um, rhodonite. Yeah. Oh, that's a pretty crystal. Uh, it's a stone. It's a crystal. Um, it's something in between. It, man. This and uh, rhodonite takes a a lot of different forms. I have a piece of it that's really spiky. It looks like um, um, like you dip your hands in pink slime and then pull them apart. Uh, it's like it has tendrils and threads, but it can also be polished. Um, it depends on the conditions. Uh, under which it formed, and uh, but it's always it's always a ruddy pink. Uh, sometimes it's orangey, but it, it's pinkish, and it has inclusions of manganese, black manganese. So it's got these veins of uh, black that go through it, and um, uh, it's uh, very pretty. It's found in Russia, um, uh, maybe in other places, but I know most of it comes from Russia, and. Um, uh, resonates to the heart chakra, so all the heart chakra issues uh, uh, become focused on it, and uh, it's especially good for ang- uh, releasing anxiety. Uh, and uh, the top that back in the 80s, the uh, energy workers used to call exogenetic energy. This is like when you go to the mall during Christmas, and everybody's really anxious and tense, and you come home and you're sore and achy and tired, and it's because you've um, absorbed all this. Uh, energy from people um, you know you're around angry and depressed people um, you get tired and achy um, you're in a, um, a, ne- a very angry negative workplace and uh, you find yourself showing symptoms of uh, illness uh, flu-like symptoms and uh, it's not related to mold or anything it's just the people around you are making you sick uh, it's it's a uh, energy that you take on physically and oddly enough this is recognized you know a lot of skeptics say well that's just a bunch of crap but oddly enough this is recognized by uh, many scientists many health professionals that we we can um, be made sick by the um, people around us and um so rhodonite is very good at discharging that. Um, several pieces of it carried around will help you not even absorb it, and uh, it is believed in this uh, stuff. So um, uh, many people in relationships with people like this, and uh, I think the popular term is energy vampire. You know, you have friends, family, lovers, um, and uh, uh, what we what we think of it in uh, New Thought is. Positive magnetism can have two poles. You can have the positive pole to your personal magnetism and be very attractive. Or if it shifts to the negative pole, you push people away. You become uh, non-attractive, right? You become repulsive. And um, many people who uh, have come to me with problems say uh, they feel like they have a people repellent. You know that even when they walk through a crowd, people avoid them, and this is a good description of of having that uh, negative personal magnetism. Uh, Mr. Conlon describes it in one of his uh, Inner Secrets of Psychology books about the negative personal magnetism. So the work is to shift it that energy back to the positive pole, and the closer you do that, the more attractive power you have, not just to people but to prosperity and um, success and whatever you want. And um, I've, I've always had a problem with this idea, avoid negative people um, because they pull you down. Well, it's going to be really hard to do that unless you stay at home in a stockade. Um, and there, there are two ways of looking at that. One is that you develop your uh, psychic defenses to the point where negative people can't pull you down. And um, 
Um, and the other is that you have a little compassion for these people and help them. Uh, and uh, give them a gift of road night. Say, you know, why don't you wear this, man? Um, this, might, this might help you out. Um, but it does help. And um, uh, I knew a speech therapist who told me, and I can't verify this myself, that rhodonite helps with stutter. I cannot verify that myself. Um, I know I used to stutter, and sometimes I still do, and I just worked on it out. Slow down, basically, is what I did. You know, just slow down. Don't be excited. Slow down, and that, that helped with me. But I noticed in some of my early TV appearances in the 80s, I was stuttering really badly. And uh, I said, I need to slow down and quit stuttering. I probably still do sometimes. I don't notice it, but I probably still do. But Rodinot is supposed to help with the really bad stutter. And um, um, according to this uh, uh, woman I used to know. But anyway, Rodinot, a uh, very, very interesting stone. I could talk a lot about it. I really like it. And uh, um, when I'm at you know spiritual events and I see it, I get really, I, I talk, I get really excited. I be, oh, you know, Rodinot, you know what you can do with that? <laughs> And then they're like, they get that glassy-eyed look that happens when I start to talk too much. But anyway, that, that's what it is. It's road night. We'll move on to something else now. Um, we um, took this uh, this organization out of the um, silence and put it on the Internet, you know, and we uh, did this in uh, 20, 2007, I think. I wasn't. Uh, involved with the group back then. That was a few years before, I, a couple years, I think, before I was. And uh, um, the website was gifted to Missionary Independent Spiritual Church, and it was a little more than a newsletter, really. And uh, it was brought into cyberspace by um, Missionary Independent Spiritual Church. And uh, since then, it's really grown. And if you go to our prayer page at crystalsilenceleague.org, uh, You'll see that we get lots and lots of prayers. I had to go over there earlier and lean it down. We had people that were printing, that were publishing uh, 10 prayers each, and uh, I had to lean it down a little bit. Um, but if you want to go there, um, you can sure pray with us if you'd like to do that. And um, we'll start that in a minute. I never call out names, by the way. Someone said, Why don't you do that? And I said, Well, because you know, we protect anonymity, we're like a 12 step program. So I'm not going to call people's names. Some people request that we don't. You know, they oh, oh, please don't do that. You know, we'll get in a lot of trouble. And um, uh, many people that post prayers are in uh, abusive relationships. Many of them are afraid of repercussions. You know, you you will see this. Uh, some of the pictures that people post will just break your heart. You, you know, you want to get in your car and drive and just, you know beat hell out of some of these guys. Um, and um, I saw today um, a news story where a woman called Disneyland to get help from an abused, abused relationship because she knew she called the police that uh, the guy would kill her. And uh, she made suggestive hints to the person taking the order for tickets to the point where the woman said, are you in trouble? And the woman said, yes. Are you in danger? Yes, and, and the woman called the police, and they came, and the guy was like choking the woman, um, and uh, of course he went to jail forever. It turned out he was uh, stealing and uh, uh, assault charges and all kinds of stuff, and uh, she, it turned out she uh, testified that he he had uh, he would beat her, choke her to the point of unconsciousness and all kinds of stuff, and she called Disneyland to um, to get help, and. So we often see cries for help, um, uh, and so I, I just wonder how many we don't see. Uh, people pass letters to uh, uh, store clerks, to waitresses, wait waiters. Uh, how many veterinarians? How many do we not see? Um, I've, I've been very alert since I've seen some of these stories, and we we certainly see them on the Crystal Silence League website. We sure do. Let's start. Prayer ID 101960, who says, 
I want to pray for a strong and happy marriage, for S and I to build a committed, blessed, fruitful marriage together. Amen. I see a great deal of happiness in this marriage. Prayer ID 101959, who says, Oh, mend my broken heart, heal my heart and soul. My heart that I gave to you fully and unconditionally has been shattered in pieces by your lies and narcissistic behaviors. I pray that all good things come my way, happiness, health, money, and love. Love, karma will get you. Okay. Amen. Prayer ID 101958. Brown recluse spider bite. Wow. I'm humbly asking for prayers for a brown recluse spider bite I received on my left inner bicep. Thank you and blessings to all. Amen. Oh, my goodness. Those things are terrible. Um, Prayer ID 101957. Dear St. Espedy, you have always helped me before, and I come to you again. Please let the letters from DCPN and MM come in soon. By tonight, and that is indeed tonight, Tuesday, January 26th, my son needs these letters for uh, bind. Please make these three complete, these letters with a sense of urgency for my son. Amen. Well, I hope those came through. Prayer ID 101956. I prayed for you. I prayed for you. I prayed for you earlier today. My son, who I've come here before about, is an addict. He is only 19, and while he was high, committed attempted robbery. No one was hurt, thank God, and the weapon was fake. However, he can still be charged as if it were real. That's true. Pray that the judge is lenient. He has a bond hearing soon, and pray that the following people I reached out send me the character letter. Please keep LR in your prayers and pray for his protection. Oh, my goodness. You know who you appeal to for um, sobriety is the venerable Matt Talbot. Um, he's he's uh, one we use quite a bit in my work. Venerable Matt Talbot. Prayer ID 101954. I need prayer to stop the blurry vision, evil deposits, and evil cords, and diverting of my energy. Amen. Prayer ID 101953. Freedom from addiction for my dearest youngest son. May he be blessed with clear vision and good health. May he know and feel the love and forgiveness for self and others. Amen. Boy, this is a real problem, isn't it? Uh, Prayer ID 101952. Removal of curses. For me, S, and the children be freed of all negative invasions. For our family to have harmony, peace, love, and joy. Amen. And prayer ID 101951. My neighbor is vengeful and is making my life a complete misery and complains about everything I do. I really would like her to move away from me. Thank you. Blessings to you. Amen. Prayer ID 101950. Please, God, help us fight this virus, which is COVID. Yeah, the prayer request says, pray for my family not to get through this COVID virus, the coronavirus. Um, Please take this sickness from my little girl. Please help us heal. I don't want to lose my family to this sickness. Please pray for us, please. Amen. I want to avoid political commentary about that. Prayer ID 101949. Remove this M.W. from M.K.T.'s life. Remove this M.W. from M.K.T. life. Okay, you said that already. Permanently remove M. from M.'s life. Destroy all links and ties to her from M.'s life forever. End all communication and contact now forever and always. Amen. Uh, Let's do another one down here. Um... Prayer ID 101938. Please pray that I will immediately have a new remote job, which is better in terms of pay and position than my last job. And I will start as soon as possible without delay, so I won't be in any danger of eviction in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's just get one more. We've got a lot of prayers today. Um, Prayer ID 101917, I accept the dream job I've received and been encouraged to apply for. I know that with all the support I'm being given and with how powerfully I feel about it, 
that it's in my highest good to be interviewed for and in receivership of this job now at this juncture in my life. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. And if I go down here, prayer ID 101911, IKS, ask that the curse being out on me be taken off, please. I would greatly appreciate it. Amen. Let's have a moment of silent prayer for all those in need of comfort, support, and lifting of various burdens. Amen. And now we'll pause for station identification. The LMC Radio Network is a media alliance whose excellent shows include The Lucky Mojo Hoodoo Rootwork Hour with Catherine Ironwood and Conjurman Ollie, Sundays, 3 to 4.30. The Crystal Silence League Hour with John St. Germain, Tuesdays, 5 to 6. The Witch, the Priestess, and the Cauldron with Elvira Love and Phoenix LeFay, Fridays 1 to 2. And Blue Flag Root Radio with Lady Muse, Fridays 7 to 8. All time specific, add three hours for Eastern, sponsored by the Lucky Mojo Curio Company in Forestville, California, and online at luckymojo.com. Well, I'm back. Hi. Um, we uh gosh we've been talking about various things haven't we um i feel like i need to um talk more about where we left off about last time the um um this whole thing about this sense of i this sense of self and um i feel like i haven't given it enough talk and um i've only devoted like a hundred shows to it so we we should talk some more um um the um it seems that um i'm going to tell you that after the death of the buddha um you know during the buddha's life there was one school of buddhism right and after the death of the buddha um his uh, disciples spread all over uh central asia and many different uh, what we call schools of Buddhism arose in the centuries to follow, and we know what happens when different schools arise. Um, various theories and approaches appeared, and uh, some of those survived to this day. Others did not, and uh, there are some schools, uh, the Madhya the Pinkas, the uh, Pujala Vedans, the uh, Varvasta Vedans have completely died out because they were considered heretics. Many of these, like the Pujavalans, um, the Varvasta Vedans, uh, posited an independent self or soul. And they said, yeah, the Buddha left room for that, and the other 
schools came in and completely destroyed them, right? Um, and um, so this whole idea of self um, uh, to really disintegrate it, to really bring it into pieces, you have to look into what's called the Abhidharma. And the Abhidharma uh, translated as further Dharma, advanced Buddhism, um, uh, beyond Dharma. Uh, it's got various translations. Um, and according to the Abhidharma, um, the um, which is uh, revealed in very advanced meditative introspection, um, this thing that what we call uh, myself is made up of parts. There's we we experience self as as a unified thing, but we find out with meditation and study that it's parts. Um, there's a material part which is mostly visible and tangible. Uh, it's an elemental part that's called rupa, which is form and color and material. And there's an invisible part which is uh, mental, uh, spiritual, psychological, that's called nama in Buddhism, which is literally name. It's all elements that are invisible but personal. Invisible but personal, you don't like your name, right? And further uh, introspection over time shows that these main parts are themselves made up of parts. They get, it just goes deeper and deeper, right? Like your rupa, your solid part, has solid, liquid, and gassy aspects, right? And the nama, the non-material parts, contains bundles of intellectual, emotional, and psychological elements that are both conscious and unconscious. But none of these units can be found to be existing autonomously. They don't exist independently, none of them. Everything's interconnected. And although these units don't always seem to cause each other, they're always dependent upon the functioning of the other units. None of them can exist independently. None of them can create an individual without the others. Each individual unit is found not to be a hard, independent nugget of reality existing in and of itself, no matter what, but each one is a tiny and fleeting functional occurrence of force or event that will be more or less the same whenever other forces exist that create it. Uh, a thin slice of reality, a moment of reality that is almost always the same depending on the forces that create it, as long as the forces that create it are the same forces. So in this Abhidharma, or further Dharma, you can find a, a very interesting book in Theravadan literature. Now, the Mahayana have their own Abhidharma too, but in the Theravadan school, we have what's called the Comprehensive Manual of Abhidharma. And um, these units are called dharmas. And the word dharma is used a lot. And if you have a um, compendium of Buddhism, you'll see dharma, uh, the word dharma has uh, you know several pages that will tell you what it means. And if that's confusing, you say, well, why doesn't each word have a single meaning? Think of the English word love, all right? If you say, uh, what does the word love mean? Well, it depends. You know, you love uh, ice cream, you love your wife, you love your dog, you love going on vacation, you might love your job, um, you might love a pair of shoes you own, but you don't love all of those things anywhere near the same way, right? Um, you might love taking a nap, um, you might love uh, a cloud, the way a cloudy sky looks, you might love the sound of birds. None of those words mean anywhere near the same thing, right? They're nuanced words. So Dharma is very nuanced, but in a sense, these units of existence, of experience that we call Dharmas, that uh, translation of Dharma means literally a holding, a grasping. And these momentary uniqueness of these moments of grasping are called in the Pali language svabhava or own being. Each moment has its own being, its own unique moment of time and existence 
that in that moment of time and existence will never be re- repeated, and its individual recognizable profile of existence is called Svalasvenga, its own mark, that will never ever be identified again. And these independence of their flashing into out of existence is called, and this is very important, Pratitya Samyupada, which is, well, literally translated, it's arising next to or in relation to each other. But what we call it in Buddhism is independent co-arising. And it's a chain of events that is the sum of all existence. It is the arising and falling of Dukkha. And because of this in, uh, this independent co-arising, interdependent co-arising of the dharmas, all things are said to be shunyata or empty of existence. And what this has caused is a great misunderstanding even among Buddhist scholars because they're not – because on its most fundamental level, reality, dharmas, moments of existence and existence itself – since they're not found to exist independently but interdependently, reality is empty, but it's not empty like a glass is empty, but it's empty to analysis. And because of this translation of shunyata as emptiness by early scholars and academics, it's given rise to this uh, very false idea that reality doesn't exist among many Buddhists, even some Buddhist scholars. And it's taken a lot of um, rethinking in uh, current years, even among uh, uh, very, learned, very learned Buddhists from other countries who, who gra- grapple with the English language trying to find words that fit, uh, uh, like Tibetan or uh, Indian or Sanskrit ideas often – have trouble with these words, you know, like uh, permbarva, rebecoming. Uh, sometimes it's translated as reincarnation, which it does not. Um, uh, rebirth is not right either. It's uh, permbarva, the process of rebecoming, is not reincarnation. Um, but um, that, that these words are hard. But the closest, this um, shunyata, this emptiness, is, is transparent. Reality is transparent to analysis it, because reality doesn't exist solidly but interdependently. A brick – we look at a brick and we say, well, there's a brick, but no. A brick is a series of events that changes constantly, and it's only our ignorance of the processes that go on in that locality that make us mistake that brick as a brick rather than a series of time-space events that come and go into constant change and flux. Again, we separate noun and verb, and you cannot separate nouns and verbs. You can't separate object and action. So reality is transparent to analysis, or it's like space, it's space-like. There's no difference between space and object. Reality is space-like. So this system was mistaken now, unfortunately, by some schools of Buddhism, since everything is divided into these dharmas, right, as teaching that reality was particle-like or granular, made up of all these infinite combinations of a finite set of simple um, particles or um, uh, simple uh, uh, bits of uh, existence, just like you know, much like matter is understood in classical Western physics as the interaction and combination of atoms, pi mesons, uh, muons, bosons, etc. But no, no, that's not what this meant. And uh, I, I've read very learned texts, a lot of like by Edward Conzi, who's a wonderful Buddhist scholar that does that very thing. You know, since reality consists of these little particles of uh, dharmas, um, they were regarded as um, as symbols. Um, the word svavarva was taken to mean intrinsic and unalienable beingness. 
this is a state of beingness, the the most simple state of beingness that you can reduce something to. It is this state of beingness and nothing more. And Svalakshana uh, was interpreted as unique and eternal property. It's purest form of property. So now in these very schools, the race was on to see who could come up with the most plausible finite list of dharmas, each neatly pinned down and labeled uh, <laughs> with its being its uh, being and its properties, right? And that's why you'll find in many Abhidharmas all these lists of uh, uh, dharmas and their properties. So um, at the same time, um, uh, this uh, progressive uh, philosophical rigidity uh, was linked with uh, a narrowing of the very spiritual effort that was the heart of Buddhism, um, the liberation of oneself without regard to the liberation of others. Um, and so uh, these uh, various academic schools of Buddhism rose up arguing about uh, what exactly the nature of reality was. Um, so along came the Madhyamikas, one of the schools, um, um, who said they had discovered the perfect middle path. Uh, Madhyamika meant the middleists, and um, um, arose and said, no, the Abdharma is all wrong. It's all wrong. They they, they decided that they were um, – um, uh, they rose above that, and uh, they called themselves the first. They were the first Mahayanas, which uh, means the great, the greatest vehicles, the great vehicle. And uh, so that implies um, big-hearted and universalism. And everybody else was the Hinayana, the inferior vehicle. And that division remains to this day: the Mahayana and the Hinayana. And in some very heated. Discussions. The Theravadan have been called Hinayana, and I'm just going to uh, give you some advice. Never call a Theravadan practitioner Hinayana unless you want to really offend them. Theravada is not Hinayana, and um, um, so along comes this. Um, um, so the um, this linguistic and logical analysis of uh, Savana and Svalashanka, uh, as understood by the Hinyanists, were self-contradictory and absurd, since everything is known and defined in terms of itself and something else. Um, so this debate went on and on, um, and uh, if this were true about space and reality, then it had to be true for the self, right? And if it's the case that my inner eye is known and defined only in terms of myself and someone else, and it's nonsense for me to concentrate on my own liberation to the exclusion of that of others. So compassion must then be the primary inspiration of Buddhist practice. So the Madhyamite Mikas, however, who did not suffer fools gladly, <laughs> were almost too successful. So by bringing Shunyata out of the ranks and promoting uh, Shunyata to uh, commander-in-chief of the Mahayana attack force, they created the impression that they were preaching nihilism. And um, uh, nothing exists really became, in the eyes of those who misunderstand them, nothing really exists. And uh, whatever such an assertion might mean, and uh, maybe only a Nietzschean philosopher could make sense of this proclamation that that he does not exist. Uh, uh, it was denounced, especially by um, the Hindu philosophers, uh, as ethically and spiritually paralyzing. I mean, imagine that thinking, "Well, I don't exist." Uh, can you imagine that? Uh, trying to imagine that you don't exist. Uh, uh, so, the similar mistake was made by Western observers of Buddhism, and with similar, you know, Jack Kerouac believed in the, the void. You know that uh, there's no exist. Jack Kerouac was that. One of the uh, um, non-existent nihilist Buddhists. Um, so philosophers and missionaries and some of the great pioneer Buddhologists called Buddhism nihilistic and world-denying, and pointed to the calm repose of many Buddha images as proof that the Buddha himself was a cold, um, unfeeling nihilist. 
Shunyata is translated as the void and became much beloved as the more incomprehensible Western occultist. Jack Kerouac's novel, The Dharma Bums, illustrates this moral confusion of nothing matters um, that became a consequence of the view that nothing really exists. And uh, But more troubling is this thing called Shunyata despair that you see in um, – Who've, from people who've read a few books on Zen or been on a few internet forums of uh, dark Zen and decide they should meditate and see the void. And you do not consciously and deliberately go looking for the void. You do not. And some people do this, and they succeed in experiencing this sense of pervasive nothingness. And this condition of shunyata, despair, really exists. Um, but nihilism is one of the viewpoints consistently denied by the Buddha and by Buddhism. Transparency, like space, is opportunity and connectedness, not blankness and not isolation. So along come the Yogacara. And in order to correct this disastrous confusion of shunyata with abhava, there's a word for everything, non-existence. The Yogacara school, as its name, practice of yoga, would imply, turn back to meditation and reintroduce the dharma list. But its dharmas cannot be misunderstood as atoms in this objective sense, for they were said to be produced by the mind. Its slogan was just mind, chitta matra, just mind. But it assumed that we would know that this meant mind in the context of meditative practice or yoga, not just mind in general. And, of course, they were misunderstood as well to this very day. The Yogacara school had a revision about uh, – gosh, there was a revision of the Yogacara about uh, a big revolution about uh, 15 or 20 years. I remember it 15 or 20 years ago. Um, and um, the um, the Yogacara had a um, exercises that were compared to um, – Catching and training wild elephant. The mind was compared to a wild elephant that you caught and trained. Um, and then once you do that, you you rather disingenuously ask, well, what is it that I have just caught and trained? So, um, um, and uh, Yogacara was very influenced in China by Taoism, the Mahayamika. Um, the Mahayamikans were linguists. They uh, analyzed the language of Buddhism. Uh, and uh, um, all these various schools. But each school had its own unique um, approach to attempting to uh, determine what this meant by emptiness. So the main schools that have survived to this day have been the Mahayana, the uh, Theravada, and um, the Vajrayana. So, but all Buddhist traditions are unanimous in uh, recording that the first teaching given by the Buddha was this was the turning the wheel of Dharma, and uh, where the Dharma is compared to a wheel or a chakra. Is set turning by the first public words of the Buddha, and at um, at his birth, in fact, it was pre- it was prophesied that the Shakyamuni would either become a world emperor, a wheel turner, or a Buddha. And his father tried to uh, uh, turn him off the course of being a uh, a recluse uh, by surrounding him with great pleasure, you know, women. Uh, Wealth, uh, sensuous pleasure, but he saw an old man and a sick person and uh, poor people, and he said, "Well, why? Why do these things exist?" And he set out to find out why this suffering um, 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 uh, and then he he found out because of dukkha, dukkha. So we have this whole thing of dukkha, and we talked about that. Uh, but the English equivalents of dukkha. Uh, that have been most offered, including pain, misery, suffering, illness. Um, but the most satisfactory translation, as I pointed out, ironically, is perhaps unsatisfactory. Um, but it's best to leave it in uh, the Sanskrit 
or Pally, um, uh, because again of the nuances uh, that we find um, in in the original language. Um, because the Theravadans usually teach dukkha directly out of the Wheel Sutra, as uh, has been preserved in the Pali. And the Buddha gives there a list of things that are dukkha, birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, grief, weeping, despair, uh, meeting things that are not liked, losing things that are liked, and not obtaining things that are desired. In short, the body, the five clusters. And this means that really every normal event of life from birth to death and associated difficulties whether physical or mental or dukkha, and in fact, the, the, the very fact of being born at all, of <laughs> being embodied is dukkha. And when dukkha is stated uh, in this uh, rather bald fashion, uh, a common reaction is to point out all the joys of life and accuse the Buddha of pessimism. But you know, joy is not being denied. It's being pointed out that joy is impermanent, so that even as we do experience joy, we're going to lose it. And that's the aspect of losing things that are liked. In fact, it's impossible to explain why beings would be attached to samsara if there were no joy at all in it. Why would we be here? Why would we even stay here if there's no pleasure in this world, right? So um, the Tibetan Buddhists are uh, very clever. Uh, they try to convince us the truth of dukkha by analyzing it on three levels. The first level is the suffering of pain. The dukkha of dukkha, and this physical or mental pain, which uh, all beings, even animals, experience and recognize as suffering. But when we experience this pain, we look for forward to a time when it will end. You know, it's like, sure, work is bad, but I have a vacation coming up, right? So change is imagined to be the end of suffering. Even people say, well, you know, I can end my suffering by killing myself. Well, no, it's not really an end. Um, uh, you know, in, in terms of eternity, but uh, change is imagined to be the end of suffering. But even on vacation, we experience suffering. You got packing and traveling and overeating and guarding your possessions and spending too much. All are suffering. I went to Florida a few uh, months ago, and we we sunburned. And I, well, I tell you, sunburn is suffering. Even though we really are having a wonderful time, we have to leave and go back to work. So we say, when I retire, I'll move to that place where I had a wonderful vacation. I'll never leave. And then we find that once there, we get bored, we get sick, and eventually we die. So the second level of dukkha is the suffering of change. And there's a very long Pali word for that. I don't need to pronounce it for you. Viparanama dukkata, where change has the nuance of decay or change for the worse. All conditioned things of samsara are con subject to change and decay. Until we look closely at it, we mistake change for happiness. When we look closely, we see it's not it's not happiness at all. It's dukkha. Change is dukkha. That's one of the uh, you know that's one of the delusions, right? We 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 think the the beautiful is ugly, the ugly is beautiful, and the permanent is impermanent. Uh, the suffering of change is clearly evident during the practice of sitting meditation. You first take your seat. You get in a comfortable position. Okay, I'm going to meditate for an hour. We try for a comfortable position, but after a few minutes, you, it becomes uncomfortable. You want to change your position. And this indicates the first position seemed comfortable, but it's not thoroughly comfortable. It was uncomfortable, but the discomfort was very small. But then it grew until we became painfully aware of it. So sitting is suffering. That's a Zen thing. And you know, in a Zendo, you're not allowed to change that position. You start to shift, you'll come by and hit you with a stick, say, no, you don't move. Bam. So um, they said, no, boom, you stay there. You experience that. So, you, you know, you try to shift your butt cheek to the other cheek because that one cheek is sore. You got a wrinkle in it. Or you're sitting on a rock and you didn't notice it. No, boom, you sit there. You, you got to stay there. You'll come by with that Zen stick. Boom, hit you with that stick because you're going to experience that truth that change is suffering. Because if you shift to the other cheek after about two minutes, you're going to shift and you start wiggling like a little kid. That little kid understands dukkha. You know, that little kid that's shifting around, he knows there's no such thing as a comfortable position. There's no such thing as a comfortable position in samsara. Samsara, you know what the word samsara means? Wandering. It means restlessness. This life is restlessness. There's no comfort in this life. This life is nothing but shifting from one thing to the next. 
That's that's the truth of dukkha. So now the third level of dukkha is very subtle, directly from the observations made at the second level. So we've discovered that whether we're at work or away on vacation, wherever we are in samsara, we're still suffering. It's constant. We conclude that samsara itself is suffering. Samsara is suffering. And since we found during the sitting meditation no position of the body is intrinsically comfortable, we got to admit the body is suffering. This is called samsakara dukkhakata, the suffering of conditioned existence. And it's what the Buddha meant when he said in the Wheel Sutra that the five clusters are themselves suffering. It's not that there is suffering in samsara. No, no, no. Along with no suffering, but that samsara is suffering through and through. That's what when it means first noble truth sometimes life is suffering people go oh my god how depressing oh no it's a great it's a great um revelation i was so happy when i got it i was mowing my yard i used to have a yard that i had i lived on a uh, two acre lot and about one and a half acres had to be mowed every 10 days and uh, i wasn't unhappy about that i thought it's a great workout i was mowing it one time it was sunny Birds were singing. There were turtles in the yard. I had to pick them up and move them so I wouldn't run over them. One time I did run over one of those turtles, and uh, I just sat down and cried and held that turtle while it died. And to this day, it haunts me. I, I hated that I killed that turtle. But I remember one time I was mowing that yard, and I was thinking about the Four Noble Truths, and they all four just coalesced in my mind. And I was so happy. I said, oh, my God, yes, this world is a hunk of shit. <laughs> and I laughed. I was so happy that I got it because it no longer had any control over me. And uh, and I just thought, oh, yeah, 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 dukkha, yeah. Everything is um, – nothing here is worth holding on to, and it never had any, any power over me after that. But I'll tell you, it did change me, and uh, um, I knew that – that was the beginning of the end of that marriage. Um, there was no reason for me to put up with the suffering in it anymore. Um, but samsara and dukkha are synonymous. There's something that's not readily apprehended. It's not readily understood or grasped. It's said to be like a fine hair in one's eye. Because of the fineness of the hair, it's only noticed by someone whose pain threshold is very low. So only when the mind has been sensitized to suffering by practice of dharma, by practice of meditation, can you appreciate this aspect of misery? Most people won't appreciate that. They think, hey, everything's okay. So we'll pick this up next time. I won't be here next week. Um, my good lady wife has a night out with the girls, and so I'll be babysitting the grand brat. Um, I'll be I'll be playing papa. So um, we must uh, say goodbye. As you know, the um, – the um, Reverend loves you, and um, we'll be back week after next with more on this. We want to look at how, how dukkha arises and how do you get rid of it. You, you can reduce it. You do not have to uh, – you, you know, pain is unavoidable, but suffering is optional. We'll come back next week. We'll see you then. This has been – the Crystal Silence League Hour. Heard exclusively on the LMC Radio Network. Join us next time for spiritual fellowship and discussion of spirituality, prayer, and advice on the practical use of crystals. It's been 30 days since the county bought it up a window and took the kids away. I've disappeared on tiptoe I'm talking to a maid Who reads tomorrow's past and present mysteries Even Eastern bands Cherokee, rich with family history The Church of Divine Harmony Serving lost lambs of Knoxville, Tennessee He faithfully prays with the Crystal Silence League Reverend St. Germain I believe
Jack, he feeds at night play, hanging from a chain. He sealed his hair in wax and wound it tightly. Sweet with white cologne, clearing paths of sandalwood and chicory, decorating homes with babies for a strong instead of victory. Church of Divine Harmony Serving the lost lambs of Knoxville, Tennessee He faithfully prays with the crystal Silent League I'll tell it to you plain in a difficult position, Reverend St. Germain gave me what we need for our condition. Cinnamon and clothes in a sugar box with five finger grasses. I keep it by the stove, stirring coffee thicker than molasses. The Church of Divine Harmony Serving the lost lambs of Knoxville, Tennessee He faithfully prays with the crystal Silently He faithfully prays with the crystal 